We are back in the book of Ecclesiastes. You can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14, and then we're heading into chapter 9, verse 10. We took a break last week because we installed two new elders. If you missed that, go ahead and find that service on our app or on our website because I want you to know how, uh, how great it is that we have two new elders and what elder leadership is all about. That's, that was the whole service last week. But today we are back. Solomon's Search for Meaning, the title of the sermon is, My Life is in God's Hands. And because it's Solomon, he is at ground level walking around looking at all the hard, painful, confusing realities of life. It's like he's in our world, and it's like he's saying things that don't come up like this in the Bible in many places. And he's saying things that seem to contradict so many of God's promises, and he even contradicts himself at times because he's on a search. He's trying to figure out what gives life meaning. Today he's asking what role joy plays in life. And he commends to us a life full of joy. He does it in an interesting way because he talks about joy, then he talks about death, then he talks about joy. Joy, death, joy. And that's welcome to earth. We're trying to find joy in a world that's gone mad, that's going to be over soon, and yet we still want to find joy. Do you see how real this book is? Solomon is searching for meaning. Five times in the book of Ecclesiastes, he breaks out into these joy poems, these carpe diem, seize the day, enjoy life. Five times throughout the book, he keeps coming back to this as a base camp. And so I'll ask you this question, is your life right now full of joy? Do you long for more joy in life? Do you wonder how you can be joyful when you feel so worn out and empty and anxious? What a profound challenge to live with joy. And thousands of years ago, Solomon was trying to find the same thing we're finding, joy that lasts. We're going to learn today about how knowing that our life is in God's hands gives us the freedom to enjoy what he has provided. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word together. Thank you, Father, that you're sovereign. Thank you that over all of the affairs of this world, you're in control. You're good, you're loving. Knowing that our lives are in your hands can release us to experience tremendous joy no matter what we're going through. Open our eyes to see how we can live with abundant joy in all the changing circumstances on earth. We know this must come from heaven, so we look up to you, we open our ears and our hearts, and we ask to encounter you today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, Ecclesiastes 8.14. 8.14. Here's what it says. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. First point, jot this down, is be joyful. 
in his search. He's spinning around, he's walking, and he says in verse 15, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. This will go with him. It is toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Ecclesiastes is challenging preaching because you don't quite know what Solomon's telling you to do or to think. Sometimes he never tells you to do or think anything. He just walks around complaining. Richest, wisest man in the world. It's leading him to tears. But because we know he comes back time and again to joy, that is what's on his heart. Joy. Be joyful. Well, how can we be joyful when we know that this is life is God-given? It says in verse 15, the life that God has given him. Solomon is very aware there is a creator. He's very aware that God made the entire world, you and everything in it. Because God has given this life, there can be joy in it. We know that it's God-given. We know that joy is God-given. And because it comes from him, it doesn't depend on us. Be joyful. There's a creator who made you in his image. His eye is upon us. Therefore, there's always a reason for joy. There are several joy passages in Ecclesiastes, as I mentioned. And some scholars downplay when Solomon talks about joy. They say that it sounds like he's just saying, well, look, life is terrible. The best you can do is just enjoy it while it lasts. Now, I will admit that that is part of what he's saying. Part of what he's saying is nothing on earth satisfies. But you can enjoy it if God gives you that ability and your eyes stay on him. But I don't think it's as fatalistic as some people think. I think Solomon is on a search, and I think there are times that he really bottoms out, and he feels like there is no point. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. I think that is definitely some of the places he's been. This is a testimony of his search, though. We know that these joy passages culminate, and we know that as we approach the last chapters, he does commend to us a life, not of futility, not of pointlessness, not of godlessness, but a life of joy with all the days the Creator has given us. That is the crescendo that it's going to. So I think we could say with confidence that this is what the Bible is teaching. Be joyful here. I believe this reflects Solomon's discovery of the fact that there is truly joy on earth and what does and what doesn't bring it. Vertically, joy comes from God. Horizontally, it does not come from earth. He's learning all of this. Now, there's some caveats here. Be joyful. Jot this down. Even if life seems unfair and exhausting. Even if life seems unfair and exhausting. A very honest book. Verse 14, he said this before. There's a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. Righteous people in the Old Testament knew God's law, aimed to follow it by faith, and displayed in many ways a, an ongoing relationship with God through the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. That's the righteous. Then the wicked are people who disregarded God and his word and his people, disregarded. And sometimes he says here, the righteous get what the wicked deserve. And sometimes the wicked get what the righteous deserve. Life is unfair. Life is unfair. He said, this is vanity, this is, this is meaningless, this is, it means it shouldn't be happening, but it means it's pointless to fight it, to complain about it. Previously, he said, look, welcome to earth, this is just the way it is. Doesn't make it right, it just makes it life. So we have to be joyful, even if life seems unfair and exhausting. He says life is unfair and exhausting, and then he says be joyful. 
Do you see how those go together? How can they go together? How can I be joyful if life is unfair? How can I be joyful if life is exhausting? How do those things go together? Does this bother you when the righteous get what the wicked deserve? Does this bother you when the wicked get what the righteous deserve? Does this steal your joy? Are you tempted to complain about what you don't have? Are you tempted to envy what those people who are making no effort to honor God do have? Is comparison in your life a big trap that steals your joy? And are you wondering, how on earth can I be joyful when life isn't fair? Is that your battle right now? Something unfair has happened to you. How can I be joyful? Something unfair has happened to somebody that they didn't deserve. They got a promotion. They got a, they're doing better. I'm doing worse. How on earth can I be joyful? And then, when it comes to toil, so there's injustice on verse 14, and then in verse 16, he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. There's so much to do, so much to worry about. Then I saw all the work of God. That just encompasses all of God's ways on earth. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Finding it out means on earth, knowing how things are coming together and unfolding in the future and trying to predict it in a wise way. But also God has set eternity in our hearts and we can't figure out how this life ties into a bigger picture. We can't figure all that out. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So life seems unfair and exhausting. The toil keeps me up at night. How can I find joy when I can't sleep? When there's one more load of laundry waiting for me and one more homework assignment that I can't figure out with my kids and one more pile of bills to pay and one more series of phone calls to make. It's wearing me out. Are you worn out? Like the older I get, the earlier I find myself falling asleep on the couch, try and find, try and watch, so let's watch something, right? Let's watch something. And then Lauren like nudges me because I'm a mouth breather. When I, I can't hide it when I fall asleep, right? It's a good thing I'm up here and not down there because if I fell asleep in church, you'd all know it, right? Maybe you're worn out and exhausted and it makes you feel empty at times and unmotivated and spent. And then it, and then it makes you cranky and angry and you're like, joy, joy, what is joy? Maybe that's how you feel. Honestly, have you been having trouble sleeping? It's right in here, right? To see the business that's done neither day nor night, do one's eyes see sleep? Have you been having trouble sleeping because of the toil, the exhaustion of this life, or because of something unfair that's happened to you? Has it kept you up at night? Solomon knows. I've, I've been battling anxiety about the future, for a variety of reasons recently, and it's kept me up at night. And I'm worried about many things. I'm worried about Pastor Alex in Kiev. I watch the news every day, trying to figure out, I know right where he lives, where's this army going? What's their plan for Kiev? What's he going to do? What's going to happen next? 
I battle anxiety over that. I, I, I battle worry and fear for my friends in Kiev, and I can't do anything to control it right now. I'm interviewing several pastoral candidates for our church, and I want to plan a bright future for our congregation. So much of that hinges on hiring the right pastors. I'm worried about getting it wrong. I'm worried about it taking too long. I'm worried about that, and I'm praying to God. My daughter Ellie is in college down in Tennessee, and my second daughter Cassie, we're going on a college visit today. She's a senior in high school. She's going to go off to college next year. (gasps) 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 What is she going to do when I'm not around every day to parent her? Boy, there's a lot to worry about sending a kid off to college. There's a lot to fear, and I realize a lot of my fear these days is coming from the future that I can't predict or control. And when I lose sight of God's power, when I lose sight of God's love, I lose sleep. Maybe you do too. Be joyful even if life seems unfair and exhausting. And jot this down, even if you can't understand everything. Even if you can't understand everything. Maybe it's because you can't figure it out that you're losing sleep. Maybe it's because you can't understand it, what God is up to, what the future is bringing, how it all ties together. Lord, I would be joyful if life was fair. Lord, I would be joyful if I just got some sleep last night. Lord, I would be joyful if I could just know what's coming next. But we can't. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes 7.14. I skipped that. We'll put that up on the screen. Ecclesiastes 7.14. Here's what it says. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You know what? There's going to be times where you don't know what's coming. The days of adversity are coming, and God can bring you joy even then. Maybe even especially then. Psalm 56, 8 gives us a wonderful picture of God. When you think of God, I don't know what you think of. When you think of God, I don't know what you think of. But listen to Psalm 56, 8. We'll put that up on the screen. Here's what it says. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? There you are, losing sleep at night. What kind of a God would allow this? A God won your tossings. Two, rolled over again. Three, four, you get up, you get water. Five, this is God parenting you. He keeps count of your tears, tears. It'd be really odd if as a parent you caught your kid's tears in a bottle look at how much they cried last night. You'd be a little weird. And that's the love that God gives to you and me? How many tears fall from your cheeks? He's got them? Wow. This is actually the opposite of how we picture God when we're going through hard times. Tim Keller in his book on preaching quotes Sinclair Ferguson, and um, here's what he quotes. He says, humanity believed the serpent in the Garden of Eden that we cannot trust God to have our best interest at heart. And he called him this. Here's who we think God is. The not to be trusted because he does not love me false father. All that's hyphenated. And is that who you think God is right now? God is the not to be trusted because he does not love me false father. Has this lie entered your bloodstream like it has the human race? Is it your default heart condition? Are you struggling to trust God's will toward you? The answer is yes. Because life seems unfair and exhausting and we can't understand what's coming next. 
Maybe life has thrown you a curveball and you don't know how to live right now. Everything's flipped upside down and maybe your life plan A, B, C, and D have failed and now you're wondering what E has in store for you. I can't understand it. If you want to know just how unpredictable life is, fill out a March Madness bracket. How many of you have a March Madness bracket this year? All right, raise your hand if it's still intact. Is anybody's bracket still intact? Nope, that's what I thought. Why? Uh, Because for the first time ever this year, a 15 seed made it to the Elite Eight. It's never happened before. St. Peter's took out Purdue and advanced. It's never happened. Everyone's brackets are busted. You can't know the future. You can't know the future. Even the experts can't understand it. Sometimes I listen to Jim Cramer, Mad Money. Does anybody listen to Jim Cramer, Mad Money? Real, you know, in the finance world, he's like really funny and insightful and, and he like tracks stocks and everything. It's very interesting to me. He's very entertaining. But almost every day he will tweet something out. What's going on? And recently it's been with AMC, the stock that, you know, they should have all closed because of COVID. Somehow it became like the highest profiting company on earth last year briefly. And he just tweets out, what's going on? He can't figure it out. Why is AMC the most valuable stock in the world right now? And then he tries to figure it out. He tries to predict the next day, and he gets most of it wrong. And he's an expert. When I listen to experts in certain areas try and figure out, what's Putin going to do next? They don't know. They can't figure it out. And when we face that reality, I can't figure out the future. Even the wise, even the experts don't know Your heart can do one of two things. You can really crumble in defeat and grow in despair because I don't know what's coming. They don't know what's coming. I don't know what's coming. Or you can understand that God does know what's coming. And, And that can give your heart rest. And you can actually find joy when life seems unfair and exhausting. Joy, even if you can't understand the future, jot this down, because God controls the outcome because God controls the outcome. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. That's a bit of a confusing line. We don't know if it means the love or hate of God, meaning God's going to bless you or he's going to make your life hard, or the love of hate is more in man's part, how, how you will feel or people will treat you. We don't know. It's all encompassing. The bottom line is this, you don't know the results. You can do everything right and everything can go wrong. You can do everything wrong and everything can go right. You don't know the results. But God controls the outcome. Important to clarify. This doesn't mean you're a robot. This doesn't mean you have no choice in the matter. Far from it. There's a lot of reap-sow principles in Scripture and in Ecclesiastes. Be wise, don't be a fool, right? It doesn't mean God's rolling the dice. It doesn't mean God doesn't know how it's going to turn out. Oh, his life turned out okay? Well, look at that. That's not God. God is not rolling the dice. He's not arbitrary. He's almighty and he's wise and he's in control and his entire plan works together in a glorious manner. But your part in it, you can't fully understand. You can't fully understand. But God does control the outcome. Have you learned to rest in God's providence? Have you learned to rest that God is alone, almighty, and wise? Have you learned to rest all of your worries at his feet? Then to walk away. 
because he's in command. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 11 to 13, another joy passage. It says this, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good, as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Far from tapping out, far from quitting, far from despairing, it's these simple things that we recommit to under God's blessing. We do good. We find joy. That is what God has for us. We accept our lot and know that our part is part of something gloriously immense. And then we can live with joy because of it all. Hey, are you resting and rejoicing in God's providential command over your future? Your life is in God's hands. Every day, every breath, every season, there's a time for it all. And if you trust him, you can be joyful. Number one, be joyful. Even if life seems unfair and exhausting, even if you can't understand everything, because he controls the outcome. Number two, jot this down, prepare for eternity. Prepare for eternity. So he goes on to say this in chapter 9, verse 2. It is the same for all. So we don't know what's coming except this one thing. It's the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so the sinner. As he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to it all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead. That's what he's talking about. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they'll die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Number two, jot this down, prepare for eternity, if you haven't written it already. Nobody likes to talk about death, but Solomon goes there. And he's saying this, it happens to everyone, no matter who you are, no matter how you live, this is the certain outcome of your life. You can't predict much, but you know this is coming, prepare for eternity. No one likes to think about death, which is why when COVID broke out and some people were trying to motivate other people to wear masks or stay home, they took extreme measures to try and save lives. So check it out, this guy dressed up like the Grim Reaper and went to the beach because people were still going to the beaches in Florida, and he wanted to go and save them by alerting them to their peril. So here's the next picture. So he would walk around holding up a sign, stay home, wear masks, save lives, dressing like death to warn people. Here's the next picture. He even did interviews on television, warning people to stay home, to save lives, because COVID is coming. Nobody likes to think about death, hear about death, reflect on death, but the older you get in life, the more that you know it's coming. Um, maybe you heard before when I shared this story, but I'm a big Star Trek fan. So when William Shatner, the oldest man to go to space, went to space, uh, oh, I watched. I watched. I was blown away that Captain Kirk finally made it up into space. And what is he, 90? Old William Shatner went up to space with a bunch of youngins, came back down. Jeff Bezos himself welcomed them back to earth. 
And then when all the young people were busting out champagne, literally spraying each other with champagne, William Shatner had a surprise interview about what he was thinking about. Check it out. Is that the way death is? Whoop! And it's gone. Chase. It has to do with the enormity and the quickness and the suddenness of life and death. Of the, oh, my God. Wiping tears out of his eyes while the young people are like, we just went to space! Champagne time. The old guy is like, death is up there. Life is short. Time is coming. This is what Solomon's doing. He's thinking about it. He's preparing for it. He's trying to get his mind wrapped around it. Prepare for eternity. It's somewhat awkward that he goes right from joy to death. And he's trying to couple those things together. Surely there must be a link. Jot this down. Everyone will die and face judgment. Everyone will die and face judgment. This is, this is why he shares these five pairs of opposites. To show that it's un unavoidable. So verse 2, it happens to everyone, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean. So ceremonially, those who are following the restrictions of the Mosaic law, those who are not, to him who sacrifices, him, to him who doesn't. So those who went to the temple and gave to God, and for those who didn't give, for the good one and for the sinner, for the one who swears, that's those who promise something to God, as he who shuns an oath, right? All of those people, no matter how bad or good your life is, death is coming. And he calls it an evil. This is an evil and all that is done under the sun. It happens to everyone. And he's right. He's right. And then he says about people, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and then they go and die. It's the fact that death is coming doesn't make them want to level up in their level of virtue. They actually go down the toilet when it comes to how they live. We're all evil and full of madness. Life is short. We're afraid. We do bad things, and then we die. So it's not really focusing here on the funeral or about death itself. It's focusing on the fact that everyone gets one. Everyone's going there. No matter who you are, no matter how you live, that's how your story will end. He calls it tragic. His math is you can live this way, and I see this, and I see this, and then this happens, and you can choose this, but then it equals tomb. Tomb. He can't balance that equation. He can't resolve that, that enigma at the end. No matter what you do, no matter who you are, in the end, it's tomb. This is Solomon's greatest source of despair, that you cannot escape death, and he can't see anything beyond the grave. The gospel in the New Testament is called the mystery hidden for ages and generations. And I would love 
to be able to sit down with Solomon. He knows now, but back in this day, I'd love to, in a time machine, go back and sit down and hear him wrestle. I want to be joyful, and and I can't figure it out. I've got everything, and I'm still not happy. And then in the end, I, I end up in it too, and I can imagine him standing in front of his own grave going, how do I live when this is the ending? And I would love to say, listen, God brings it all together. Everything you're searching for, lasting security and joy and provision, everything, all the wisdom of understanding, everything you want, he brings it all together. And to walk up to that tomb and put my hand out and say, and guess what? It all comes out of this. It all comes out of a tomb. Because he's going to send his son as a savior into the world. He's going to live and feel everything you do. And they're going to kill him even though he never did anything wrong. They're going to put him in a tomb, and on the third day, the stone is going to roll away, and Jesus is going to come out of the grave with everlasting life. I think Solomon would faint knowing that life comes from death. He'd be like, yes! It makes so much sense. God's going to bring it all together. But he can't get past that here because he's in the Old Testament. You and I, we know better. That's been opened. The veil's been torn. The stone has been rolled away, which is why when it comes to death, we no longer need to feel like Solomon and to feel like life is pointless. There's no meaning. And and then I die and what? Nothing forever. No, no, no. We know the end of the story. We know that no matter how you live, you can be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ who came out of the tomb conquering death, He can promise you a place in eternal paradise forever. Joy, free, forever. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. His greatest source of despair has actually become our only source of hope. That a dead man rose again. This is God's ultimate eternal plan. Death was the path to filling life with everlasting joy. He is risen. Hey, listen, if you don't find joy at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, you'll find it nowhere on earth. Nowhere. Because it's not here. Solomon is coming up short, but he doesn't give up, but he can't figure it out. Jot this down. We know that everyone must be saved from sin by Jesus. We know that. We know that. It's the same for all. It's the same for anyone, no matter how you live. Death is coming And the hearts of everyone are full of evil, it says here in verse 3. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And then we die. But we're alive now. And while we're alive, verse 4 says we still have hope. We still have hope. For we know we're going to die, but the dead know nothing. Their time is done. And there aren't second chances. You don't come back. It talks here about the things the dead can't do. There's they, they know nothing. There's no more reward. You, your memory's forgotten on earth. This is all on earth. Love, hate, envy, all gone. Forever, you won't share any more part. There's no second chances. Time is short, and when your chance is over, it's over. Therefore, the Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We share a common need for rescue, to become righteous through God's Son. Do you have a story of when God saved you? I was in college, freshman in college. My buddy invited me to his church. I was the drummer in a metal band. He was the bass player. I had hair that went all the way down to my belt. And he invited me to his church. I'd never heard the gospel proclaimed. I'd never heard that grace is free. For I've never, I'd never heard that. I thought I had to work hard to, to earn eternal life. I thought I had to go to church a lot to be made right before God. 
Nobody ever told me it is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I have to surrender. I learned this. I had to surrender, kneel down, say, Jesus, forgive me for all of my sins. I'm sinful, broken beyond repair. Rescue me. And I got saved. I got saved as a freshman in college. Have you been saved? Sometimes people say, well, I'm religious. Religious people don't go to heaven. Sometimes people say, well, I'm good. Good people don't go to heaven. The Bible says saved people go to heaven. Are you a saved person? If you have a story of when you were saved, you're a saved person. If that's foggy and you're coming up empty, maybe you're not saved yet. Maybe it's time. The way that we know you're saved is when you choose as an adult or uh, an adolescent, after you have asked Jesus to save you, you get baptized. And in two weeks, you have an opportunity to get baptized, to tell your story, to say, Jesus saved me. I would love for you to make that choice today. Be joyful. When you find joy in being saved by Jesus Christ, your joy will never be taken from you. You can lose everything on earth in an instant and you still have everything in Him. Be joyful. Even if life is unfair and exhausting, you can't understand everything because God controls the outcome. Prepare for eternity because we're all going to die and face judgment and we must be saved by Jesus. Now jot this down. Number three, be joyful. <laughs> Number one, be joyful. Number two, you're going to die. Number three, be joyful. <laughs> That's the simple flow of the sermon today. Be joyful. Check out chapter 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil, which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that's the grave, to which you are going. Basically, he's saying be joyful. Rest in God's providence. Solomon often, in this book, envies the person who's happy with the routine joys of life. He's in his palace. He's got 700 wives. Sometimes he goes out for a walk because things get crazy at home. Okay, 300 concubines, 1,000 women. He's going for a walk, and he'll just walk past somebody's house, and they're just having dinner. And, you know, one wife, laughter, kids. Solomon's like, I want to be him. Does that shatter what you think you need to be happy? For the richest, wisest guy alive walking around, empty, vacant, and he looks into a house like yours, and he sees a life like yours, he sees some gladness and a meal on the table, and, and he wants that? Wow. Jot this down. Be grateful for all that God provides. He talks about the simple things. Drink your wine with a merry heart. God's already approved what you do. What does that mean? Approved means if you have the basics in life with joy, it's a sign of God's grace and favor. God's approved you. God gives the power to enjoy things. There are rich people right now who aren't happy. God has not given them the power to enjoy their life because they don't know him. They're stressed out. They love money, false rival God that will never make them happy. 
And there are people who live on so much less that are so overjoyed, whether it's in this country or in another country where they live on so much less than we could ever imagine, smiles on their faces. It's God's approval. Are you grateful with all that God has provided for you? The Bible is clear. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Mega gain. Super gain. Godliness, contentment. Not access. Check out Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 26. It says this. Go ahead and put that up there. 2, 24 to 26. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering, collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Check out uh, chapter 5, verse 18. It says this, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. It comes from God. And we know in the New Testament, it comes from God in Christ. In Christ. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Maybe you've been chasing the dead end of trying to get more, earn more, get more, earn more, have more, get more, earn more, have more. <gasps> Still not happy. Well, let's try it again. Nope. Dead end. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. That means that contentment starts when you have food, clothing, a roof over your head, and Christ in your heart. That's where contentment starts. And listen, if it doesn't start there, you'll never find it. Do you understand? If after food, clothing, a roof over your head, and Christ in your heart, you're not happy, you'll never be happy. Because you already have everything right there. Now sure, your goods can increase, but the Bible says don't set your heart on them. Don't set your heart on them. Maybe you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the basics in life and say, I want to find contentment right there. Be grateful for all that God provides. Are you content? Have you found joy in the simple things of life? Jot this down. Treasure your family. Treasure your family. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. You're, you're clean. You're wearing a good outfit. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not living in a t-shirt with holes in it and sweatpants for good. You've given up, right? You, you've got your best garments on. You've got oil on your head. You're clean. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're in it. You're in the game. Enjoy life with the wife who you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil. So some scholars say that Solomon is, how can Solomon be an advocate for monogamy when he's got 700 wives? Some people look at this and they're like, you know, just find a woman and be happy. Um, it's a dis they would say, see it as a despairing line. That doesn't fit with the context. Clearly in the context, Solomon is in envy mode. He, he sees people who are uh, who have been joyful with much less than he has. He wants that. He sees people with a wife and, um, 
And, and he wants that joy. And so he's commending that to us. I do believe is the best, uh, the best way to interpret this. And when it says your vain life, it's not saying that it's all pointless anyway. He's saying that even though your life is vain, these are the sources of joy that you are going to find. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. How are you doing at treasuring your family? Uh, how are you doing? There, there's plenty of Proverbs about monogamy, faithfulness, and the dangers of the forbidden woman. My goodness, look through Proverbs, and Solomon is full of warnings, the damage that causes. This also uh, combats workaholism. Elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, he talks about the guy who never stops working, and never home, never happy. That's, that's, a, that's a trap. That's a trap. Fretting, worrying. And how are you doing at treasuring your family? How are you doing at keeping the fire hot at home? How are you doing at going out on a date night? How are you doing at helping out, being a partnership, being a team? Hey, what's next for our family? Where are we going this summer? What does our week look like? How are you doing at finding joy in your home? How's that going? Don't despair. If you feel like we got to get back to square one on that, then do it. Then do it. Don't despair. Solomon is, is searching for meaning, and he's coming back to a basic home with food on the table and, and laughter, and he's like, I'm coming back to that. So maybe you feel that way too. That's where the treasure is. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Such a sacrificial love, such a serving love. There's my treasure. Be joyful. Be grateful for all that God provides. Treasure your family and jot this down. Work heartily as to the Lord. So work, toil, the basics of life. Whatever, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale. It, hey, time's coming when you're not going to have the chance anymore. But while time is here, work heartily. You can actually, as an expression of gratitude and worship, work hard whatever you're doing and enjoy life. Work heartily. Time is short. Some people might say time is short. Let's slack. Nope. Time is short. Let's work. Let's make it count. The idea of sloth is appalling to Solomon. Here's a picture of a sloth that they caught. They rescued a sloth several years ago, and then people photoshopped it because it had this pose, this weird, after it got rescued on the left, this sloth had this weird pose that looked adorable. So they photoshopped it out, and then they put this super sloth in all of these other pictures to show how amazing this sloth is. I show you that because we are not supposed to be the sloth. We're supposed to be more like the super sloth, working hard to make a difference in our family with our friends and, and, and provide for our relatives and then also working for Christ. How are you doing it? Working hard, enjoying having a job, earning a wage, building a home. How are you doing it? Working for Christ in your church, saying yes to taking on more. In our kids' ministry, our youth ministry, we need tech workers. We need worship people. How are you doing it? Saying yes to working heartily as for the Lord. Wow. Basically, this sermon is, be joyful, you're going to die. Be joyful. And I commend to you a life of joy. Maybe you need to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord for the first time ever. You won't find joy anywhere on earth unless you look up and find it in heaven. Maybe you need to say, you know what, I'm getting back to the basics here. I've been making it too hard. I'm going to be content. I'm going to figure out how to be happy no matter what's going on. Maybe, maybe you need to trust God that he has your life in his hand even if you can't understand everything. Whatever it is, let's take this to the Lord in prayer and invite Him to
to change our mindset so that we can be joyful because our lives are in his hands. Let's pray together right now. Father, what a challenge to be joyful. What, a, what an impossible, puzzling, perplexing mandate. How can we be joyful when life is unfair? When that happened to me, How can we be joyful when life is exhausting? When we've got nothing left, we're empty. How can we be joyful when we don't know how this is going to turn out? Father, you control everything. Jesus, you have all authority. Forgive us for not finding our rest in you. Forgive us for resenting your sovereignty, for rejecting your goodness. Forgive us for treating you like you're a terrible God who lies, who fails us. You've never failed us once. We know that you promised to allow many painful trials into our lives. But you'll work everything together for good. We know that. Help us to be joyful. Get us ready for eternity. This life is just preparation for eternity. Some walked into this door today. Some are watching online today. They are not ready for eternity. If they were to pass off this planet tonight, they would go to hell forever because they have not made peace with you. Oh Lord, I pray that you would drive them right now to prepare for eternity, to stop messing around, to stop putting it off, to stop denying the truth, to stop finding hope in false things about themselves. The only way they can be saved is to say, God, I'm doomed. Your judgment is coming upon me. I have failed to keep your standards. I've ruined my life. Save me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. It's their only hope. And if they cry out to you right now, may they realize that you will save them. You will never leave them. You will never forsake them. Life forever is at your right hand. I pray that they would surrender to you right now everything and that they would trust you alone for salvation, Jesus. And help us to be joyful because we're saved. Nothing on earth can hurt us. No one can touch our treasure in heaven. Whatever comes, whatever goes, we can be grateful with the very basics. This is so foreign to everything we are told. We're lied to about what's required to be content and happy. Solomon sees through it all. Jesus, help us to find joy, treasuring the basics, our family, our job, our Lord, because you are with us. Oh Lord, fill us with lasting joy because our lives are in your hands. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.